Hello everyone, today is Sunday, March 7th, and if Senate Democrats have just passed the COVID-19 relief plan, then this is the delve. It is crazy to think that this time last year, March 2020, we had no idea how long this pandemic would last and just how insane it would be. But here we are, one year later. Although we are almost up to 30 million cases in the United States alone, there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon. The vaccines. Pfizer and Moderna committed to delivering a total of 200 million doses by the end of March. The newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine is easier to store and distribute and requires just one dose. And perhaps the best part is, President Biden has announced that he believes most Americans will have the opportunity to be vaccinated by the end of May. Throughout the past year, there seemed to be a new update on COVID-19 almost every day. It can be really hard to stay up to date on the most current vaccine developments, the safety precautions, and the different strains of the virus circulating around our country. And to make matters even worse, it can be difficult to understand what all of that news means if you don't have a background in medicine. Luckily, we've got an expert with us today to walk us through the development of the vaccine, why this vaccine is safe even though it came about so quickly, and when the world might return to some semblance of normalcy. Today we're talking with Dr. Tony Ho, an infectious disease and internal medicine specialist at the University of Texas at San Antonio Health System. Dr. Ho, how are you today? Thank you for coming to The Delve. Thank you for inviting me to them. I'm doing well. Great. I just want to jump right in here. And everything's moving so fast. And I think the world is excited about the developments for the vaccine and that we might be turning a corner. And I guess before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of medicine you practice? Ah, of course. Uh, my name is Tony Ho. I am an infectious disease trained hospitalist at UT Health in San Antonio. My practice is actually all inpatient hospital care, basically patients on the acute medicine wards. Um, and of course, my infectious disease subspecialty training contributes, synergizes very well with that sort of treatment. Especially nowadays, because a significant amount of what I do is COVID care. It just helps a lot because I have the background to really understand and discuss the research behind it and kind of advance from there. Okay, so before COVID came around, how prepared were you for this? For COVID? In the sense of... Did it hit you like a truck? <laughs> like all of us? Or were you like, oh, okay, yeah, this is kind of like the flu. Let's see how we can you know, kind of develop this from here? I did not expect it to be as pervasive as become because I kind of looked at the history of say like SARS or mm. MERS and, you know, they kind of started in the in China or in the Middle East and petered out because of appropriate infection control there. 
Right. This had the unfortunate ability of a lot of asymptomatic spread. And so that's led to the situation here. How I approached it was I started out actually fairly excited because mm-hmm. I'm like, this is this is what I'm meant to do, right? As an infectious disease hospital, right. this is what I'm meant to do. I kind of describe it now, though, a year later as a, it's kind of like wanting to go to Disneyland and wanting to go on that really cool roller coaster that you've been wanting to do all your life. Mm-hmm. But then you're stuck on that roller coaster for like three hours because no one knows how to stop it. And you're just ready to get <laughs> and you're like, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> please, please bring in the engineer. Yeah, exactly. It's like, can we not figure out a way to stop the roller coaster <laughs> by now? Come on, guys. Right. And I guess tell me a little bit about your hospital and how it's been handling everything. The VA hospital in San Antonio is where I practice, and it has, I and we're, we've been doing pretty well from what I can tell. We were very forward in establishing a COVID command system, and basically our COVID patients, especially, was especially important during the peak of it all, we isolated out entire wards to just COVID care, which mm-hmm. means the ward is locked off. To get into the ward, you have to fully gown up, get, you know, the N95s or the PAPR systems on. You can go in, you know, basically like an airline kind of system you can think about to access the entire ward. It's a little bit of a hassle to do that, but what that means is that you can walk freely between patient rooms and not be concerned about gowning down, gowning up again, getting people cross-infected, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're done in the COVID wards, you can leave, decontaminate, and you're, you're fairly safe then. Every day, we have a COVID IDT, an interdisciplinary team, where it is the hospital medicine attendings that are taking care of the COVID patients, along with one or two pulmonary critical care attendings, along with at least one or two infectious disease doctors as well. And we discuss on good, low volume days, we discuss every patient, make sure everything's going the way that it's supposed to. When uh, when we hit like 50, 60 patients on, on the board at the time, we can't really do that. So we discuss the most pertinent cases. But we have multiple eyes on all the patients, and I think our patient outcomes are pretty good, showing how the level of care that we've delivered. And before the vaccines came into play, were there other sort of medications that you saw kind of promising, calming down some of the the more severe cases? Really, the only medication that's shown actual mortality benefit has Mm. been dexamethasone, you know, nice, dirt-cheap steroid to calm down the hyperimmune response that occurs at the tail end of COVID. Mm. We use remdesivir early. It seems to help a little bit. We use convalescent plasma as well. When we use it very early, it seems to help a little bit. Some of the problems early on was because of lack of access to the medications. We were saving it until patients get sick, Mm. and that doesn't really work for the antiviral medications. Once patients get sick, the horse is kind of out of the barn, and you're dealing with hyperimmune response, not really active viral replication anymore. What I've heard very good things about, aside from the vaccines lately, are the monoclonal antibody cocktails can be given, again, very early. If you Mm -hmm. give them to patients early on, the turnaround is remarkable. They go from doing moderately bad to being very, very good uh, over 24 hours. And I guess, could a person who's kind of just developing symptoms, would these type of cocktails be really good for them? Yes, yes, they are meant for people who are just barely developing symptoms. Because again, once you get to the point where you need oxygen, antiviral therapy isn't helping. We have to start working on tampering down the immune system at that point. Okay. And I know that you spent a lot of time with the vaccines. And when I say a lot of time, obviously, I mean in the two and a half months that it's kind of been around. 
How radical of a departure from normal science is this vaccine? Well, this is where I have to add in another little credential I have. I've actually been part of the Moderna trial since about late August. So I've been involved in the vaccine for far longer than just oh. the last couple of months. Yeah. And I've okay. been, it's been my, my task to, as to research out like every possible thing about it, because not only getting it myself, but also giving advice to my patients and to others who are interested, you know, what are the side effects? How does it work? How does it not work? How do I allay the fears of people? that are just, you know, they're being told all these random things and no one is an expert on the field and so they have no one to talk to. So to answer your question, how radical departure, it is radical in the sense that it's really not how we traditionally make vaccines. Most of the vaccines in this modern era are, you know, the one we commonly talk about is like the flu vaccine. Everyone should get it once a year, right? So basically standard process, you grow flu, actual flu virus in an egg or in cell culture, kill the virus, you purify out the antigens, And then you give that to the patient. Now, just having random foreign protein in the body, the body doesn't like that, but it doesn't necessarily reliably react to it. And so what we do is we give an adjuvant, something that stimulates the immune system to wake up and say, oh, there's foreign stuff here. I should probably make an immune response against it. This is radically different because this is the first time that on a wide scale, we're using agents that introduce new genetic code into our cells to make the cells manufacture the protein we want. This is very important because the fact that the cell itself is manufacturing foreign protein automatically stimulates the immune system because the immune system says, hey, you're making stuff you're not supposed to be making. And this stuff is actually in your cell, in inside the cytoplasm. Uh-huh. So this shouldn't be here. It by itself has a huge stimulation of the immune system just by that. And so you don't need that extra adjuvant that could be causing problems by itself. That being said, the tech behind all this is actually decades old. The first mRNA vaccine in literature was in 1990, so just over 30 years ago. And we started seeing literature about the adenovirus vectors about then as well. And I feel like this takes us to kind of like a place where we're seeing like a lot of communities and perhaps even some minority groups who are a little concerned about the rapid development and the departure from normal science. How safe is this vaccine? I would say it is very, very safe. Basically, we've done these studies for it. One of the funny things I keep hearing is, oh, don't be a guinea pig. And I kind of just want to respond, well, I was the guinea pig. You know, I was the one who was in the research trial right, that showed trials. it was safe, <laughs> that showed it was safe. So, you know, I was the guinea pig to show that it is safe. And then since, since being released, we have constant monitoring of all and any possible side effects to the vaccine gets reported to VSAFE or VAERS. And CDC actually just recently released the data evaluating the VAERS data after one month in, 13.8 million doses, there are no deaths directly associated with a the vaccine. There's some people that talk about, oh, you know, well, we keep hearing about these elderly in nursing homes die. They actually directly address that. They said, based on background data with 1 million long-term care residents that have been vaccinated within that time frame, there should be about 7,000 that just die randomly, right? Just random chance because right. they're old and they're DNR. So just natural deaths natural deaths. Mm-hmm. Within that time period, only 78 deaths were noted, and half of them were hospice and DNR patients. So they don't, they, the people that are spouting these numbers don't put it in the appropriate context. And so mm-hmm. the number of deaths look better <laughs> than that just baseline, mm-hmm. which uh, it shouldn't tell you that this is protective for that, but it should tell you at least that this is not overtly harmful, even for the very elderly and the very infirm. Right. I, I feel like that's a very important 
fact to know. Thank you for adding some context to that. Because I feel like a lot of listeners, uh, even when this airs, folks are going to have that in the back of their mind, kind of cautious. And, you know, that's kind of like natural. We're a little scared of this virus. And so to get a vaccine to be, you know, approved, even at this emergency level, folks are a little apprehensive. But I I guess it's, you know, we can say that we have a doctor on here who can (laughs) tell us it's safe. And, And besides like the decades of kind of research into this, what also contributed to the vaccine being able to be created so fast? Was it just the you know the huge amounts of funding from the government? Was there you know other elements that played a part? Well, the main thing is so the decades of research were actually more for like gene therapy kind of vaccines, but the groundwork for these vaccines is in what we call prototype pathogen preparedness, and basically. We're like, huh, coronaviruses that come from animals, novel new coronaviruses in humans can lead to pandemic spread. And so we've had prototype pathogen preparedness platforms to evaluate how to best deal with this. So Moderna's vaccine came directly out of their research on MERS. It was basically just a slight edit of their, the same, I think they named it the same thing too, but their MERS version of that vaccine rather than the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 version of it. So to that end, because they already had the blueprint for the vaccine set. Once the genome for SARS-CoV-2 was was sequenced and released online for everyone to work on, Moderna was able to actually finalize the design of the mRNA within 48 hours. The rest of the time, past few months, have just purely been testing and making sure the vaccine was safe and efficacious. So this was already in development, but for a previous virus. Wow. Okay. I... That's that's mind blowing that it was able to and like you said finish kind of like the the formula for it in forty eight hours and I guess we've been hearing that perhaps what could work with some of the vaccines against some of the new variants is some type of booster or perhaps a third dose. Can we dose our way out of the invasion of these new variants? So far, I would think so, but I don't think we need to. And the reason is the current data still shows good neutralizing ability for the vaccinated serum against new variants, though the titer is lower. When they do neutralizing titers, what they do is they dilute out the serum, which contains the antibodies, and they see what level of dilution it takes to get 50% inhibition of the virus. With some of the new variants, they have to dilute less, which suggests that the antibodies are less active. But that being said, even at the lesser dilution, you're still talking about like 1 to 120 dilution, right? So the serum still seems to have good neutralizing capabilities still so far in the short term. However, to be prepared, most of the manufacturers are running multiple studies on the vaccines with changes in the code for the variants to see if you can develop a booster shot that will address the variant specifically. Okay, so that's good news for the South African variant and the Brazilian variant that we do have something in the arsenal to attack it. Yep. Incidentally, this is also a major reason why I disagree with a single dose approach. Oh, if you're right. if you're worried about the vaccines being less potent and needing mm-hmm. more of them to counter the variants, it doesn't make sense to give a dosing regimen that gives markedly inferior antibody right. titers. Because the way the human system, the human immune system is set up, the boosted response, what we call the anamnestic response, boosts antibody levels anywhere from ten to several hundred fold over the initial shot. So you want that boost to get the super high level of antibodies. And we'll be right back. Registering voters is hard work. The Democratic Voter Project is now selling shirts where you can register a new voter by scanning a QR code directly on the shirt. 
With this shirt, you can now register a voter anytime, anywhere. But that's not all. With every t-shirt purchased, you plant five trees. Purchase a shirt now at demvp.org slash shirt. <laughs> okay. Last week, I was reading an article and I heard this term for the first time, long COVID. Are there long-term effects to COVID? And if so, what are they? And how long would they be with the patient? This is actually something, so long COVID I've known about before, but they have just recently, as of two days ago, I guess uh-huh. on the 24th, Fauci has coined the name for it. It's called PASC. So it's post-acute infection sequelae of COVID. So PASC. That's, that's a mouthful. But. It is. <laughs> I, I kind of prefer long COVID, but <laughs> I, I guess that's the new term for it now. <laughs> so just some background. So flu, if you're talking about just influenza, 90% of people will be back to their normal state of health two weeks after the disease, right? Most people get flu, they feel crappy for a week or so, and they're, they're done. COVID is not associated with that in a good chunk of their survivors. And so CDC released a survey 14 to 21 days after PCR positives, and they found that about 35% of people still had not returned to their usual state of health yet. The older you were, the more likely you were to still have symptoms, like 47% of them over age 50 were still exhibiting symptoms. But even like the 18 to 34-year-olds, the kind of immortal we're going to live forever, that are incidentally the greatest spreaders of COVID right now. Still, 26% of those guys had continued symptoms. So when they did the breakdown, mostly it was fatigue and cough still. About 40 to 50% each still had fatigue and cough. Congestion, shortness of breath, about 30%. And of those that had multiple complaints when they first started, 60% of them still had multiple symptoms at that 8, 14 to 21 day follow-up. And that's really just basic symptoms. If you want to talk about like the scary stuff, the end organ damage, Okay, yeah, let's 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 go there. <laughs> Paper and JAMA actually covered this and referred to several studies. For the heart, German study of 100 patients, they did cardiac MRI 71 days from diagnosis, 78% of them still had cardiac involvement, 60% with ongoing cardiac inflammation. 71 days. 71 days out. There's another study in 26 college athletes who recovered from COVID. 46% of these young college athletes had evidence of myocarditis or prior injury, myocardial injury under the cardiac MRI. What was their time frame? I don't recall their time frame. I think it's still several weeks out. I think it's still like 30 wow. days out at least. If you're talking about lungs, study of 55 hospitalized patients at three months after discharge, 64% of them had persistent symptoms, 71% of them still had abnormal imaging, including pulmonary fibrosis, which means that the lungs were so inflamed that they have now scarred in that inflamed state. Is there healing process from that? We can manage it, but pulmonary fibrosis is mainly just doing the best we can, giving some steroids if they flare up and just kind of hope for the best. There's not, I mean, it's, it's just like a scar on your skin, right? Once a scar is developed, it's just there. There's not like a lung neosporin. No, no, yeah. there, there isn't. There isn't. Oy. Another study, 57 patients, they had decreased what we call DLCO, diffusion capacity of carbon monoxide, and diminished respiratory muscle strength in about half the patients 30 days after discharge. Oh. And then Lastly, neurologically, right? We've heard about the acute strokes even in young, healthy people, but there are reports of seizures and brain fog that persist for two to three months after the initial infection. So there are very long-term effects of COVID. Wow. 
I don't know if we hear enough about this. Mm-hmm. We hear about kind of like the initial impact and folks recovering. It's like, okay, you're all done. But it's actually, that might not be the full story. And with some schools going to in-person learning and the government wanting to perhaps develop some type of policy to send students back, how does COVID affect children? How likely are they to spread it? It really depends on the age frame. So when you're talking about children, we kind of want to lump everyone 18 and under together and the immune systems don't work that way. Life doesn't work that way, right? (laughs) So when you're looking at kids under 10, they are actually remarkably resilient to COVID. They don't get it very well. They don't transmit it very well. And even when they do get it, it's very unlikely that anything bad happens to those that are under 10 years old or so. That's like a really interesting key point there, kids under 10. So it would almost be if we vaccinated teachers who were in primary schools, we could safely send children under 10 back to school. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Kids above 10. (laughs) It's above 10 though, especially like the 15 to 19 year old range. They actually had the highest incidence of COVID even compared to the adults even because they're getting older and they don't really care. So they're spreading anything and everything back and forth. So yeah, those guys are the most at risk. So whenever you see outbreaks in schools, almost always it's an outbreak in a high school. Yeah. Yeah. We did an episode actually. It was last year. It was the school. It was in Georgia, actually. It was a high school. They had just gone back. The football team was training, I guess, like a week before the full school started. Huge outbreak in just a few days. Mm -hmm. Okay. So high schools, we should probably push pause for a little bit. High schools, you should probably push pause for a little bit. What's nice is that... 16 and above can get the vaccine. So the top end of that can be vaccinated at least. But yeah, middle school and and younger, especially if you vaccinate the teachers and you still appropriate social distancing and everything, it should be reasonably safe. And the data looks So it's one of those overall, and the data from multiple places have shown overall that you can open a school safely if you, mm-hmm. if you, you know, do appropriate contact tracing, if you do, you know, social distancing, masking, you know, sanitizing, all of that. One unfortunate thing is a lot of people want to read the data different ways and they say, oh, schools are safe. We can open again with no precautions. Like, no, that's not what the data is saying. <laughs> that, that's in no way what the data is saying. Right. But then on the other side, they're like, oh, they're saying they have to do all this so that it's unsafe. It's like, well, there's, there's, a, there's a happy middle road. You know, it's like there are ways to do it, but you need significant buy-in by the teachers, the administration, and by the parents and the, the kids. And unfortunately, in most situations, one or more don't want to buy in fully. I am going to preface this question with, I'm a young adult, I do not have children yet, but why can we not vaccinate children? Because they have not been studied in children yet. Mm. And it's one of those where they were excluded mainly because they don't get severe disease. And Mm. to be honest, because of the negative stigma about all this vaccination, they didn't want something bad to happen. And then that just derailed the whole vaccine development. It's one of those where we would like to think, oh, it works fine in the 16-year-old, so why not give it to 15 and 14-year-old? They don't respond the same. And we found that out with like Gardasil. I, I'm not you know, a pediatric doctor, so I don't know off the top of my head exactly what happened, but I remember that there was some change in how 14, 15-year-old girls responded to it. So they actually had to change up the dosing recommendations for them because 14, 15-year-olds do not respond the same as 18 to 20-year-olds. So because of that, and because of the fact that you know, risk versus benefit, they don't really get severe disease at 
all, it's hard to justify going against the data and saying, oh, you guys should get vaccinated regardless. Okay. And I guess moving away from children a little bit and going back to adults, what are some of the most common reactions that we have seen from the vaccine? I know you were mentioning they're not lethal, thankfully, but what have some other reactions been? So the standard reactions are what we call the reactogenic reactions. Basically, it's a sign that the immune system is getting kicked into high gear because, like I explained to you earlier, these simulate basically an actual infection without being an actual infection, and the immune system gets really kicked up because of that. The mRNA vaccine generate a whole lot of what we call flu-like symptoms, especially with the second dose. The first dose, most people are just fine with it. Some have a little bit of sight tenderness. Some have a little bit of maybe headache, a little fatigue, things like that. Not a whole lot of other stuff, maybe a little bit of muscle aches. One interesting thing specific to the Moderna, um, I've, I've actually heard it in both, but it seems to occur more in Moderna, is what they've colloquially called the COVID arm. It's a delayed hypersensitivity reaction where about five to nine days after the shot, the area around the shot gets kind of hot and red. That's just, again, more sign of the immune system, you know, kicking in and doing its job in that skeletal muscle. So it's kind of like a good sign. Yeah, it is. It's saying that your immune system is working. The second shot is really what is more dreaded. And again, really only a minority of people have bad reactions to the second shot. I mean, most people get just a sore arm or something, but uh-huh. about 30, 40% or so will get fevers, chills, malaise. I unfortunately fell into that group. So I was, when I got the shot, I was completely, you know, I didn't know what I got, whether it was placebo or real, right? And so I got the shot and that second dose, I'm like, I don't really feel anything. I probably got placebo. And then it hit you. 24 hours later, I was at work. I'm just going around doing triage. I'm like, Uh I don't feel so well. (laughs) Uh What's going on? And so I didn't have my thermometers. I couldn't check my temperature, but I actually had the first shaking chills I've ever had in my life. I'm like, oh, Uh this must be what it, what, people say they feel when they feel shaking chills. Realizing it's most likely due to the vaccine, and also they swabbed my nose the day before for to detect for COVID, so I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is not COVID. I took some Tylenol, it kept the symptoms at bay, checked my temperature when I went home, I was like 101.2, took some more Tylenol. This whole thing lasted for about 12 hours. At the end of 12 hours, so like 10 p.m., I sweated out a ton, and then I was 98.8 and felt absolutely fine afterwards. Okay, so this is like a very short-term thing. That's the thing. It's like even with severe reactions, it's usually very short term, usually within 36 hours or so. There are a couple of people that report headaches and stuff out for a couple of days out. But from just I know a lot of vaccinated people now being a doctor and having mm-hmm. a lot of other doctors telling me all about their symptoms. The vast majority of them did just fine, just some sore, some sore arms or some chills for about 36 hours after and they're done. Well, that's good news. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really good news. I want to see if we can continue with this good news kind of trend here. If you had to guess, when do you expect life to kind of return to normal? And I'm putting normal in air quotes. Uh, hopefully by the summer. Because really what it comes down to is how can we get COVID transmission so low that the risk of you just walking around and encountering COVID is significantly low enough that's not going to overwhelm the hospitals. That's what we're really looking at, right? And it looks like hopefully by this summer, we'll get to that point. What do we have to accomplish, I guess, just as a country to get to summertime normalcy? I think just better acceptance of the vaccines. And right now we're still doing well. The main thing is, you know, more vaccines are being taken. There's still such high demand for vaccines that 
in most metropolitan areas, all of the appointments are still constantly booked out. While that's not great because people are needing vaccines, that's still a good sign that they're not slowing down because of not of you know, lack of acceptance of the vaccines. It's one of those just continue accepting it and doing our part. I, I know a lot of people are fatigued with all of the isolation and all of the you know restrictions here and there, but we just have to go a little bit longer and we'll see what we can, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get to a point where we can walk outside without masks um, by the summer. I just noted that you mentioned that you're working in San Antonio and you guys just dealt with a bit of uh, unusual weather down there. Oh, yeah. How is everything now? Oh, actually, on Thursday, it was still, everything was snowed, and it was still, still? like, frozen ice. Well, last Thursday, I'm sorry, last oh, Thursday. okay, okay. And on that Friday, a week ago, everything had melted, and the grass was green again. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Yeah. During the time before, that was pretty hectic, though. Yeah. I, I still had to go into the hospital, and no one here knows how to drive on ice because we never have to drive on ice. That was a little bit of a little scary driving on ice on my little compact electric car. <laughs> <laughs> but everything is okay now. Everything is more or less okay now. There's going to be some reckoning with the whole electric system, the electric right. grid, and why we were so woefully unequipped for this. But right. Hopefully, it makes some positive changes in the future. But yeah, in my in my hospital, even though the hospital still was on the grid and had power, it was so unprepared that my office is actually, I'm actually a, a vagrant doctor right now because uh, my office got flooded. I, <laughs> oh. right, right over my workstation, a pipe burst and just flooded oh, everything. No. And so the entire hospital section is now flooded out and we're like just camping out in like nursing education rooms. We have to wander from room to room, call room to call room, finding <laughs> safe places. Now it's really kind of ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to laugh, but wow, that, that is, that's. You that's, have to laugh, right? You have yeah. to laugh because it's one of those, I, I put on my Facebook page a, a meme that's a really getting tired of living through historical events now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's. That's true. <laughs> these can stop. <laughs> and Dr. Who, I like to end these conversations asking our guests, what makes you hopeful about the future? Can you tell me something that you're hopeful about or optimistic about? I'm optimistic that with regards to COVID, I'm optimistic that the vaccines still look like in real world performance, they still look like they're working just as well as they did in the trials. Israel has, I don't know if you're aware, but Israel has a very interesting collaboration with Pfizer. Basically, yeah. they got first dibs at Pfizer vaccine in exchange for access to Provide the medical data. a lot of data. Right. Yeah. So Israel is like a giant research study and real world research study is the real world uh, effectiveness of the vaccine. And it seems to be working just as well as in the trials. So and they have a really promising. diverse population. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's 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 really great quality yeah. data there. Yeah, that's really helpful for the future. Like I said, our in our veterans at the VA, we had a precipitous drop in admitted patients, uh, more so than across the street at the uh, in the the university hospital. And I think secondary to the fact that we were able to vaccinate our most vulnerable, our long-term care facility patients early in January. Some of them got infected because of outbreaks in between doses. The ones I took care of had actually very mild disease. The ones that were infected 10 days or more after their first dose had very mild disease compared to what I was used to seeing. Wow. 
That's terrific. Dr. Ho, we have this thing that we like to say at the Delve is, I like listening to the Delve, it makes me smarter. And I <laughs> I definitely think 100% you contributed to me and on all the listeners. You've helped make us smarter. So I thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the Delve.